Philippians chapter 1, and we're beginning at verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Well, if you were with us uh, last week, uh, you'll have realized that we're going through a sermon series where we're outlining what we think God is saying to us about what we should be and what we should do over the next four or five years. And we're, we're taking you through this strategy under this banner title of this Gallic word, through. Um, and uh, we practiced it last week. Do you want to have a go at saying it? Aru! Do you have another go? One, two, three. Okay, the back of the room didn't really get that. So it's Aru! Okay, do you want to try again? Okay, you know, still not sure at the back, are we? But it's Aru, and it means to shift, to change, or to transform. And we believe that that's what God wants to do in us and through us as a church over the next four or five years. He wants us to shift some stuff. He wants to change some stuff. And he wants to transform some stuff. He wants to transform situations. He wants to change people. He wants to shift something perhaps deep within who we are as human beings. And really what we're doing is beginning our sermon series looking at the most basic building block. As we look at changing lives, as we look at transforming society, as we look at deepening influence, and those are the three strands of our strategy, changing lives, transforming society, and deepening influence, we want to begin with this idea of lives being changed. 
And it's very easy when we start to talk about lives being changed to immediately think about people out with the church. People out there, people in society, people in culture, people in Edinburgh who as yet don't know Jesus, and to pray that their lives might be changed. Now that's right and that's good, but that can only happen really if our lives are changed. The first and most basic and fundamental shift, change, transformation that needs to happen is something deep within us as people, as individuals and together as a church, that we feel what God feels, that we see what God sees, and we respond and live as God wants us to live. One of the questions that we're often asked as as clergy, as members of staff, uh, when people are new to P's and G's is, how do I become a member of St. Paul's and St. George's Church? And we have some stock answers. We might say, well, you might join a connect group, or you might come to a welcome evening and have cheese and wine because it's peas and cheese, and we have cheese and wine because we're posh like that. And so you might come to a welcome event, and that's a way in. Or you might start to serve in the church. You might join a team. You might join the worship team. You might join a children's team or a youth team. But people say, well, how do I become a member? And we say, well, basically there's a form that you sign. And you just say that you believe in Jesus. You say that you've received communion in the previous uh, three months. And you say that you've been baptized. And people look at us and go, is that it? And we say, yes, that's it. As well as everything into the financial offering every week. Um, But that is the way that you become a a member. It's just signing a form. Well, the reality is that in different parts of the world, becoming a member of the church actually is a bit more significant than that, and it has some more far-reaching implications. In Iran, people who want to join a church have to sign a written agreement agreeing to lose any property that they own, that they're willing to go to jail, and also to be martyred for their faith. (coughs) Suddenly the bar has been put a bit higher than just simply signing a form. In the Anglican or Episcopal Church in Singapore, the equivalent of their school of theology involved a gap year at the end. They would go through two years of of part-time study, just like we have in our school of theology. But in the third and final year, you would do a gap year where you would go off on a placement, but before you went on that placement, you would sign an agreement where you said that you didn't hold the diocese responsible for your death. Again, the bar has been raised slightly higher than signing a form. Francis Chan, who for many years uh, led a huge church in the States until he sensed God calling him to do something else, now leads a network of house churches. He went to Iran and to Thailand and to China and saw a different way of being and doing church. He writes about his amazement when he met Christians in China and being amazed at the five basic principles that they followed. Firstly, a deep commitment to prayer. Secondly, a deep commitment to the Bible. Thirdly, a deep commitment to sharing their faith. Fourthly, a regular expectation of the miraculous. And fifthly, a conscious decision to embrace suffering for the glory of Christ. The bar has been raised slightly higher than simply filling in 
a fall. A few weeks ago, some of us listened in the upper hall to the true story of a church on the border of China and another country where it's illegal to be a Christian. Even though it's illegal to be a Christian in that particular country, conservative estimates put the number of Christians in that nation at 400,000 people. People who are willing to die simply to belong to a church. People who are willing to die, to risk everything because they realize that Jesus gave everything for them. In that country, we hear that that particular group of Christians in this uh, borderland between China and this particular nation uh, will often bury the Bible. They'll bury the Bible out with the village, and at night, they'll go in the middle of the night and dig up the Bible and read the Bible by torchlight. Having read the particular section of the Bible that they wanted to read, they'll turn their torches off and they'll bury the Bible again for the next night. You see, the reality is that where we live, where we are, we just take this for granted. We say to people, if you haven't got a Bible, there are some at the back on the ground floor. If you're in the balcony, there are some in the front. If you've got a tablet or a phone, you can get your Bible app and you can open it up. And we just take it for granted. Imagine being so deprived of the Bible that you're willing to bury it, but you're willing to risk everything by going out in the middle of the night and reading it by torchlight because you know that if you're caught reading this book, your life will probably end. You'll certainly be put into prison. Everybody in your family and immediate uh, circle will be in prison with you in a concentration camp. That's the reality for some of our brothers and sisters around the world. In Iran, in China, and in that country that borders on to China. We don't like to think about it in those terms. There's a fantastic sketch by Eddie Izzard, the comedian, who speculates what it would have been like if the Spanish Inquisition was run by Episcopalians or Anglicans. And basically, he speculates that we would be saying, death or cake? Which do you prefer, death or cake? And being good Anglicans, being good Episcopalians, we'd say, oh, cake, please. And that's the way it would have worked if the Anglican Church or the Episcopalian Church were in charge of the Spanish Inquisition. But the reality is that Jesus calls us to give everything. There's a famous quote about being a disciple of Jesus. Jesus promised his disciples three things. They would be completely fearless, they would be absurdly happy, and they would be in constant trouble. Absurdly happy completely fearless, and in constant trouble. And we see that perspective in the life of Paul, one of the first leaders of the early church, writing this letter to this church in a place called Philippi from prison. He's probably in Rome. He's probably facing certain death. And yet, even through these early verses, the first chapter that Mike read for us a few moments ago, we see this amazing perspective on life, on suffering, and even on death itself. So firstly, we see Paul's very different view on suffering in verses 12 to 14. 
He writes to the church and says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me has really served to advance the cause of the gospel. It's one, perhaps, of the most profound questions that we face as human beings. Why do people suffer? They suffer for different reasons, but often it's perplexing. Why do people suffer for faith? If we're on the winning side, if Jesus promises all these good things, how come all the way through the history of the church, people have had to suffer for a belief in Jesus Christ? Here is Paul in prison, probably facing certain death, suffering for his faith, yet he's positive. What has happened to me, he says, has actually served to advance the gospel. What had happened to him was this. If you read the Acts of the Apostles by this stage, he'd been beaten, whipped, falsely arrested, shipwrecked, flogged, lied about, arrested, and was now facing certain death from a Roman prison. Yet his perspective is so different. What has happened to me, he says, has really served to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. That word actually means really, truthfully. What's really happened, Paul says, is that despite all these things that have happened to me, what has really happened is that Christ has been proclaimed. More people have heard about Jesus because of what has happened to me. Libby made the point this morning that actually for the Apostle Paul, who was an itinerant evangelist, he, he made his living and had made his living ever since he'd met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, by going from place to place to place to place, by traveling. He was somebody who loved to discover. He had these what are called missionary journeys. There's three or four of them in the Acts of the Apostles where Paul goes from place to place throughout the ancient world. And so what would it have meant for somebody who loved to travel now effectively to be under house arrest, chained to a member of what was called the Praetorian Guard, the, the elite soldiers in the Roman army who looked after uh, the emperor and the palace and everybody who was uh, under sort of uh, imprisonment uh, by the Roman authorities in Rome. And Paul says, what's happened to me has served to advance the gospel. I used to go from place to place to place to place talking to people, meeting new people, now I meet new people every day. New people every day come to me. They all do the same job. They all work in the Roman army. They're all members of the Praetorian Guard. They're all members of the elite. And every four hours, I get a new one. Every four hours, there's a new one who's chained to me. And he is literally a captive audience. Imagine what it was like for the Praetorian Guard going, let's look at the rotor. Oh, no, I've got that guy, Paul. He's got to just preach at me and tell me about Jesus for the next four hours. But Paul didn't go, oh, I'm, I can't go place to place. I can't go and tell people. He said, listen, it's fantastic. I get a different one, a newbie. Every four hours, fresh meat. Every four hours, I get to tell somebody else, somebody different about Jesus. Jesus. And more than that, Paul says, the brothers and sisters in the church in Rome, they've been encouraged too by hearing that more and more people are hearing about Jesus. They've been encouraged in their faith. He knew that the Emperor Nero was about to start a persecution of the church, and therefore the church in Rome needed to know what it was to proclaim Christ 
fearlessly. Paul does it individually, one-to-one. The church in Rome starts to do it even as they face persecution. And we see this paradox of the Christian faith that suffering so often produces deep faith and character. If you are suffering this evening, you're probably discovering things about yourself and maybe things about God that you didn't know before. It's been one of the privileges of my life and my ministry to walk alongside people who are going through really, really hard times. Times when often things just don't make sense. And time after time after time, in a way that I can't rationally explain, and often the person can't rationally explain, they will say that they have discovered things about God and things about themselves that they would never have discovered had they not gone through that particular circumstance or situation or challenge or difficulty. Suffering, Paul says, elsewhere produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character produces hope. Something happens when we suffer and something happens when we suffer and are aware of Jesus suffering alongside us. Eugene Peterson, that writer of spirituality in the Christian faith, said this, Suffering is not evidence of God's absence, but of God's presence. And it's in our experience of being broken that God does his surest and most characteristic salvation work. It's when God gets to work deeply in who we are. Often when we go through times of pain and suffering. So Paul has this very different view on suffering. Secondly, he has this very different view on other preachers. In verses 15 to 18, he goes on to say, some people preach um, out of envy or, or rivalry. I don't care. What their motives are, the the, the important thing is that more people are telling more people about Jesus. And because I'm in prison, more people are telling other people about Jesus, and I don't really care. I want to tell you a secret this evening. Lean in. Most church leaders are desperately insecure We may appear okay on the stage or the platform. We may appear as though we've got life and faith sussed. By the way, if we do, we really haven't. We're just blagging it because we're paid to at times. But the reality is that most church leaders, if they're honest, are incredibly insecure. That's why often, sadly, church leaders misuse and abuse power and status and position. You can see it by their willingness to attend any conference, anywhere, anytime, irrespective of the Christian leaders go from conference to conference to conference to conference, desperate, desperate to find the golden bullet, the thing that somehow will make all the difference and will enable their church to grow and to prosper. 
The reality, sadly, is that often other church leaders are jealous of growth and success. It's true in Scotland. It's true in the UK. Why? Because we're human. Paul writes here that some preach Christ out of jealousy. Some preach Christ out of envy. Some preach Christ out of a sense of competition. And the reality is that often, whether we acknowledge it or not, church leaders feel a sense of competition with other church leaders. Churches sometimes feel a sense of competition with other churches, whether we like to acknowledge it or not. About 10 or 12 years ago, there was a really funny blog that some students did in Edinburgh where they compared churches, evangelical churches in Edinburgh, to English Premier League football teams. <laughs> and they speculated as to which team was like which club. I, I, I thought it was absolutely hysterical. Uh, the problem for me as a fan of Man United was that we were described as being Liverpool. That was just beyond the pale for me. Um, there were reasons. I'm not going to say what the reasons are. Central, uh, they were compared to Chelsea. Um, St. Mungo's, Belerno and Newcastle United. And as I say, uh, we were, were Liverpool. Now, I thought it was hysterical. Uh, if you can find it on the internet, good on you. I think it was deleted because some people objected and were offended so grievously by it. Um, but I thought it was really, really funny. Um, but the reality is, the reason that it was funny was that it was articulating what is often unspoken. Is that somehow there is a competition between the churches in Edinburgh. And so how do Central feel about P's and G's? How do P's and G's feel about destiny? How do P's and G's or destiny feel about Charlotte? How does Charlotte feel about Chalmers? And how do all of us feel about the H word, Hillsong, coming <laughs> to Edinburgh? Paul says, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. But the important thing is that Christ is preached. The reality is, of course, is that other churches are not the competition. Other churches are not our competitors. Other churches are our colleagues. Other churches are our family in Christ. The reality is that God, when he looks at the church in Edinburgh, only sees one church. The things that are actually competing with the church the things that are actually competing with the gospel, the things that are actually competing with the claims of Jesus in your life and my life are not other churches. They're things like personal idols that we have, like money or relationships, our family or our status, achievement or success, our health or our good looks. Or perhaps there are cultural ones like power or freedom, hard work or identity, fulfillment or prosperity. Those things are the real competition with the claims of Jesus Christ. It's not central. It's not P's and G's. It's not destiny. It's not even Hillsong. It's the things that would draw us away from Jesus. It's the things that would compete in our lives for our attention, for our energy, for our ambition, for our hope, for what we give our time to, for what we give our best to. 
Those are the things that are competing with the claims of Jesus Christ in your life and my life. Now, the reality is that your career won't save you. The reality is that your job won't save you. The reality is that your relationships won't save you. The reality is, is that your looks won't save you. They might bring you a sense of purpose. They might bring you a sense of fulfillment. They might bring you a sense of achievement. But at the end of the day, when everything's said and done, and when the real reckoning comes, it's not going to be your career, your looks, your achievements, your status, or your possessions, or your financial accruement that is going to actually bring you salvation. Only Jesus can save you. And the reality is that far from competing with each other, other churches are actually our colleagues, our co-laborers, they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. As I mentioned last week, we live in a nation where 95% of Scotland have no meaningful connection with any church. And if we spend our time just simply swapping the 5% between Destiny and Central and Hillsong and P's and G's and Chalmers and Charlotte or any other church that you want to name, and if I haven't named your church that you belong to, please don't take offense. But if all that's happening is that we are swapping the 5% amongst each other, it's pointless. If all that's happening in our church, in our city, is that we're church swapping and church shopping, then that is such a waste of time and such a waste of energy. You might swap churches for lots of reasons. It might be the music. After this evening, it might well be the preaching. After this evening, it might well be the leader. Or perhaps your church that you belong to, or this one, it's not changing quickly enough, or it's changing slowly. You know, in all the people that I have chatted to who've left a church, whether it be at this one, or whether it be another one, people have given lots of reasons for leaving. They don't like the music. They don't like me. They don't like the chairs, they don't like the heating, they don't like the lights, whatever it might be. I have never, ever heard someone say this to me. I'm leaving this church because I'm not being discipled well enough. Now, could we do discipleship better? Of course we could. That's our aim and our hope with our new strategy, is that we will do discipleship to and for each other better. But if we're honest, it's often not the reason why we leave a church. If you can find a church that will disciple you better, go. Join it. And I tell you what, if you find a church that can disciple you better, that can help you grow more as a Christian, I'll come with you. Because I want to be part of a church where I'm growing to my full potential as a Christian, where I'm being discipled as a Christian. So Paul has a very different view on suffering, and Paul has a very different perspective on other churches. Because finally, thirdly, Paul has a bigger picture. He has this amazing perspective on life and death. Verse 21. For me... 
To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Listen to those words again. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If we truly lived like that, if we truly believed those words, we would have a different perspective on our lives. We would have a different perspective on church. We would have a different perspective on faith. We would have a different perspective on work. Everything would be different. Because if you are so captured by that vision, so in love with the person of Jesus, so aware of what he has done for you and in you and through you, that you can say, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is unbelievable. It's a unique, life-changing perspective, both on life but also on death. It's a most profound insight echoed uh, by the words of Obi-Wan Kenobi, who in Star Wars said, Kill me, and I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. This idea that if, you die, if I die, then actually everything will be fulfilled. What was happening in, in that quote when Obi-Wan uh, used that line was he was simply paraphrasing this, this verse. Because everything changes if that is your reality. I was reminded this week of the true story of a guy called Paul Negru. Paul Negru was the pastor of a church, a Baptist church, in Romania in the late 1980s. And this particular Baptist church was at the forefront of resisting the, the communist regime, the communist government, under the ruler, a guy called Ceausescu. And he was threatened with death by the secret police numerous times. He was imprisoned. He, he was threatened with all sorts of things. And his response when communism was overthrown and his story was told was, was unbelievable. He said this, whenever they, the secret police, told me, we're going to kill you, I said, I can hardly wait. That will be my greatest victory because you will lose me forever and I will be home forever. I will reach my destination and I can hardly wait. And again, you can picture the secret police going, should we? No, don't kill him. It's what he wants. Let's not kill him. It's what he wants. And if we kill him, we lose him. Paul Negru had that perspective on life and on death because Jesus had changed his heart. Jesus had changed his mind. Jesus had changed his life. And because Jesus had changed everything inside, everything outside was different. And that's what it means to be a whole life disciple. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it means for us to live wholeheartedly for Jesus. Now, the reality is that we live in 21st century Edinburgh. The reality is that we're probably going to be killed by indifference rather than physical persecution. You tell somebody you're a Christian at school, at university, at college, at work, and they might say a whole range of various things, ranging from that's odd, to, ooh, that's nice, or, ooh, glad it works for you. 
Not many of them are going to say, I'm going to kill you for being a Christian. That's not our culture. That's not our context. That's not where we find ourselves. Our temptation is to allow that apathy and allow that indifference to shape our discipleship. So rather than being 100% committed, we become apathetic in our discipleship. We become half-hearted in our following of Jesus Christ. But you see, according to the Bible, according to the New Testament, you're either in or you're out. You either give everything or you give nothing. You're either living for Jesus or you're not. You're either living with Jesus or you're not. Yes, you might come with your doubts. Yes, you might come with your fears. Yes, you might come with your weaknesses. Yes, you might come with your struggles. But you simply say to Jesus, I'm coming and please accept me as I am. And Jesus says, I'll take that. I'll take that. I will take what you can give me. And I'll take what you come with because I gave everything for you. And even though you're not ready to commit everything to me, I'm ready to take you where you are. And I want to lead you, and I want to draw you out, and I want to get you to a point where you can commit everything. Because I gave everything for you. And when you realize how much I gave for you, when you realize how much I love you, when you realize the unconditional, undeserved grace that is available to you, then you will give everything. You will give your heart. You will give your time. You will give your ambition. You will give your past. You will give your present. You will give your future because it is worth giving. Especially those of you who are younger. You've got your whole life in front of you. I haven't. Most of it's gone. You have your whole lives in front of you. My hope, my prayer for you is that over these next few weeks, even over these next few months, that we would paint such a picture of what it means to follow Jesus Christ that you will never be the same again. I want to wreck your life. I want God to wreck your life. I want you 20 years from now to look back to this teaching series and whether it's Paul or Libby or me or somebody else for you to go, I am doing what I'm doing now because of that flipping sermon series all those years ago. Because during that teaching series, God got hold of me and God did something in me and God changed me. I was talking to somebody two weeks ago and I'd forgotten it completely, but but, but she said, because of the last strategy, I'm now doing what I'm doing. At that time, she was about to go to university. She's now training in a theological college for ordination. She'd never thought of ordination. She thought God called old people, people like Libby and Paul and people like me. She never imagined that God could call somebody age 17. But he did. And he did it through that first sermon series on the strategy that we preached five years ago. And now she's in a totally different place, doing totally different things, and her whole life direction has changed because of a teaching series in this church.
five years ago. So that's my prayer. If you're under the age of 30, you probably need to find a different church for the next two months. Unless, unless you're prepared to respond to what God is saying to you. And unless you're willing to have your ambitions, your hopes, and your dreams wrecked, and your life turned in a totally different direction, which will actually be the direction that you were always meant to go in. Jesus says, I want you to come to me, and I want you to bring all that you are to me, because I gave everything that I had for you. When he called people, Jesus used a very simple phrase. In the English, two words, follow me. Follow me. It was actually a technical term that Jewish rabbis would say to people. And it meant this. I want you to be my follower. I want you to be my disciple. I want you to come and enter into my rabbinic school because I see that you have the potential to do what I do, that you have the potential to know what I know. Jesus says to you, and Jesus says to me this evening, come, follow me, because he believes in you more than even you believe in him.